Well, good morning. It's certainly a pleasure to be here with you this morning. So we have already carved out some time uh, from a, a beautiful day, a uh, time that we were just more than happy to set aside uh, to, to come together and to sing praises to God as we just sang that song, Praise Him, Praise Him. He is an, an excellent and, and our almighty God. And I hope as we sang those songs, we really stopped and thought about who it was that we were praising uh, and, and just what he has done in our lives. And I want to talk about that, that, that idea a little bit of, of knowing what he's done in our lives or knowing more about him. Um, as Richard read for us uh, in the scripture reading um, from the book of Second Peter, a passage that we have read quite a bit here lately. We've been spending a lot of time in here. And what we have done is we've talked about growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we could understand that that's a process. It's a, it's a process in which we have to follow um, the, the steps that he has given us to grow in that, in that process. And we saw that it begins by laying a foundation of faith. It is faith or trust or conviction that we are to build our knowledge off of. And then we are to add to that faith virtue or the idea of, of, of excellence or pursuing excellence. But what I want to talk about this morning is the next thing that we are to add in that, and that's found in first, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. We are to add to, to our faith and to our virtue knowledge. And that makes sense. Because what good is it to have conviction, to, uh, which is faith, or to have a desire to excel unless we know where to focus our faith, unless we know where to channel our virtue or our good works. <clears throat> I want to say that Alan did an excellent job on Wednesday night. Wednesday night, Alan did an excellent job digging into this passage. I'm very appreciative of him doing that. Because as he highlighted, these eight graces are very vital to our growth in Christ. And Peter tells his readers, he says, and then Alan pointed this out, Peter says, I'm going to remind you of these. I'm going to remind you of these things, even though I know you know them. So I'm going to do likewise. I'm going to take a, a play right out of Peter's playbook, and I'm going to remind you of them as well. Because what I want to show you this morning is that knowledge is an essential element in growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that might sound very redundant. Might sound like, Kyle, you, you just said the same thing twice. It, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Knowledge is important to gain knowledge. Well, there are two subtle differences in these words that are translated as knowledge. In fact, they are two separate words, the words knowledge that, are, that come from our text. Now, I want to start this morning by reviewing those words. But first, I want you to consider, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Daniel for just a moment, I want you to consider some young men that are discussed in the book of Daniel. To, uh, three men named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as their, their, their uh, Babylonian name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In just a few chapters, we're going to read about these, these three young men, and we're going to read about them defying the orders of King Nebuchadnezzar. And when these certain instruments were played, everybody was to stop what they were doing, and they were to worship and, and bow down to this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But these young men refused. They refused to do so. Word get back to Nebuchadnezzar. Start reading with me in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. 
It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, and psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now, let's stop right there just for a second. Here, here's the problem that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in. The, these, these three young men have gotten themselves kind of in a, in a pickle here because not only do they do something very hard by defying the king's orders behind his back, so to speak. They, they weren't necessarily doing it in, in hiding, but they weren't directly in front of him. They've, they've defied his orders when he's given this, given this command. But now they're not only in front of him, but they're faced with, with a very painful death, this idea of being burned alive. And he's saying, you have a choice. You're going to do what I said, or you're going to die. Those are your choices. Seems like a pretty simple choice for most of us today. Okay, you know, maybe I can, I can, I can just bend a little bit here because certainly I'm, I'm worth more to God alive than I am dead, correct? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go on in verse 16 saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. How can these young men have such a strong faith and have such a strong drive to serve God, even in such a sacrificial way, as to give up their own lives? Standing before the king and saying, you know what, our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not serving you. We're serving him. Just a few chapters later, again, we're going to read a similar story in Daniel chapter 6. A new king, uh, Darius, uh, is, is in charge. Darius foolishly signs this decree, says that by punishment of death, no one can worship or pray to any god or man except Darius. But again, like his friends, Daniel hears of the decree, but he is not going to be hindered in his service to God. Again, it's, it's just it's, it's mind-boggling. When we really stop, as Jim talked a minute ago about the, the um, persecution that people around the world have to face uh, as opposed to the things that we are so oftentimes worried about, it's mind-boggling how someone can take persecution like that and still say no I'm going to serve God. I'm going to stand strong in the face of, of a very real, a very dangerous threat. And I believe the answer to that is found in part back over in Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, in verse 3, we read a little bit about who these men were. It says, then the king, again, this is going back as Nebuchadnezzar, the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who has the, had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them, excuse me, ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. <coughs> These young men were to be good-looking, they were to be wise, and they were to be endowed with understanding 
and discerning knowledge. What King Nebuchadnezzar was looking for was people who were teachable, people who could be taught. This was important to him because they wanted to teach them these ways of the Chaldeans. They wanted to teach them how to serve in in his courts. So they had a, a purpose for that. But they looked at these people and they said, these are people who are teachable. And then we noticed where they came from. Not only were they teachable people, but they were teachable people who came from the kingdom of Judah. And, and, and in that kingdom of Judah, we, we understand that Judah, while they certainly, they, they certainly fell from God, they were the ones, they, they were the, the, the kingdom that sought the longest to try and serve God the way that he intended to be served. But then just not just anybody from Judah. They were the, from the royal families of Judah and from the nobility of Judah. So what we have here are young men who have been shown to be studious or capable of discerning knowledge and had the opportunity, being royalty, to be exposed to high teaching. We might ask yourself, what kind of teaching is that? Verse 8 makes it pretty clear that it must have at the very least been, been uh, taught about the dietary restriction uh, placed on them by God. Verse 8 says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Certainly. Certainly they were taught more than just the dietary restrictions. Certainly that's not the only thing that they were taught. They were able to stand strong. They were able to, to be faithful to God and to, to serve him in a very bold manner because they knew something about God. And I believe this is what Peter is alluding to when he calls for Christians to add knowledge to their virtue and to their faith. And I believe we will see that <clears throat> as, we, as we consider... As we consider how our, our faith and, and our virtue are reinforced and are held up by knowledge. First things we need to do, though, as I mentioned earlier, is that there are two words used to describe knowledge. So we need to know a little bit about knowledge. These two words are, are two completely different Greek words. One is translated epigenesis. I know I practiced that like five times last night, just, just over and over again. I've got it. I've got that word down. I didn't have it down. Epigenesis. Uh, that, that is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in another study, we noted that already. We talked a little bit about this word. It's the phrase that is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 8. And this word means to become thoroughly acquainted with. To become thoroughly acquainted with, to know thoroughly, to know accurately, or to know well. This knowledge only comes, as we read these scriptures, it only comes as we demonstrate the, these eight graces, these eight Christ-like graces in our lives. So that is certainly one of the definitions of knowledge, and that's the definition that we're striving to, to grow in, to grow in a thorough a thorough acquaintance with Christ. That means, another way of thinking about that would be a very strong relationship. We are going to know Christ and know him well. But to do that, we need to add one of these elements. This is the element gnosis, another word meaning knowledge. It means to seek to know, to inquire, or to investigate. That is the word that is used in 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. And this word, again, conveys a very normal idea. We understand this idea of knowledge. It is an awareness, an awareness through study or an awareness 
through experience. We have, we have gained knowledge like this in our lives. We have an awareness that one plus one equals two because we have studied how math works. We have an awareness that hot things are hot and cold things are cold, oftentimes because we've touched them and we've learned. We, ha- we understand how to get this type of knowledge. How do we get this awareness? God is saying this knowledge, which in this case is pertaining to understanding the will of God and the way of salvation through Jesus Christ, is essential in growing in a close and thorough relationship and understanding and knowledge of Jesus. So what we are to do is to add to our faith and our virtue gnosis, knowledge, so that we can truly know, or epignosis, or epigenesis, Jesus Christ. The importance of this knowledge is seen further as we, comm- as we consider that God demands his people to have this knowledge. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, we see that he demanded it from his people. Turn back there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. <clears throat> see the importance that, this was, that, this was, that was placed on this. Saying these words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. We see that pretty much all the time and everywhere you are to be growing and you are to be teaching and talking and discussing The words that I've commanded to you today is what God was saying to the people of Israel. He expected it of them, expected them to be knowledgeable and to be something that was on the tips of their tongue, something that was within their eyesight at all times. They were all all the time thinking about it. But you know, it's so easy for us to go, you know what? No, that's important for them. That's important for those people back then. But what about for me today? For me today, God does God still require that every second of the day and all the time, that's all I'm supposed to be talking about and that's all I'm supposed to be thinking about is this knowledge? Well, let's consider what Jeremiah 31 says. Again, we're in the Old Testament, and so we're quick to go, nope, that's the Old Covenant again, but listen to the words in Jeremiah 31. Verse 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Uh-oh, now he's talking about us. He's talking about days are coming when it's going to pertain to us. I'll make a new covenant, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they will not teach again. Each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins, and I will remember them no more. In the new covenant, in our day, in our time, in our lives, God expects us to know him. He demands that from his people, that we should have a knowledge of him. And that is, if we want to be pleasing to God, we must grow. We must have this knowledge. Colossians chapter 1 talks about this some more. Colossians chapter 1 over in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1. In verses 9 through 10, 
Say, for this reason also, since this day we have heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You notice what else was laid out in that passage there? Not only are we told that we are to, to be knowledgeable of God and that that is what they pray, that we will be filled with, this, with the knowledge you notice also in verse verse 10 that we are to be pleasing to God. A couple Sundays ago, we talked about how it's impossible to please him unless we believe that he is. We are to have faith and then we are to be bearing fruit in every good work. Again, that's that idea of virtue. Faith and virtue increase real knowledge of God. We can see how these things are dependent, not just in in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, but also in, in other places, we see that there is an emphasis placed on these things being dependent upon one another and added to one another, causing increase. But we see that God demands that from his people, to have knowledge. But God is also displeased when we show a lack of knowledge. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1. <clears throat> We know how Israel, God says Israel was destroyed. Uh, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has, has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. In verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. In Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, he goes on to say, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgment on you are like light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God was very displeased when his people showed a lack of knowledge. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see that likewise with us today, he will be displeased if we do not know him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Without knowledge... Without knowledge, we have nothing. Without knowledge, we are lost. Romans 10, verse 1 through 3, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. We can have all the best intentions, we can have all the zeal, and we can have all the sincerity in the world to want to please God, but if we don't have knowledge of who God is, then it's all worthless. It's all in vain. We need to have a knowledge of God. And since this knowledge is so important, we need to ask ourselves, well, how do I then add that knowledge? How do I supply that knowledge to my faith, <coughs> to my faith and to my virtue? We need to learn how to develop that knowledge. Turn over to Colossians for just a minute again. As we read there in Colossians chapter 1, let's go to Colossians chapter 2 now. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and read with me. For I want you to know how great a struggle 
I have on your behalf for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is in Christ himself. When it comes to developing knowledge, I think all of us know uh, a little bit about that. Where do we get our source for knowledge? Certainly, it's found in Jesus. He is the ultimate source of true knowledge. And this makes the New Testament extremely essential for it contains the only reliable, excuse me, the only reliable source of information that we have concerning Jesus' teachings and his actions while he was on this earth and also concerning the teachings and the actions of his apostles that he that, that were inspired by by his holy spirit. I want to say it's 2 Timothy chapter 3 passage when, when we bring up the source for knowledge I'm, I'm sure most of you very quickly think of this passage 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 it's going to show us that all the bible is a is an excellent place to receive knowledge <coughs> saying you know or excuse me you however Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, we see an emphasis placed on the fact that knowledge makes us able to, to be equipped to have virtue, to have that pursuit of excellence in our lives. And that is the source for our knowledge comes from Jesus and comes from the Bible, not only from information about Christ and his salvation and his salvation, but also the things which make for the for a complete man of God. The knowledge which we are to add to our faith and the knowledge that we are to add to our virtue is found only in the pages of God's Word. And I think most of us are going to say, okay, that's, that's pretty low-hanging fruit right there, Kyle. That's a pretty obvious thing to say. When we are seeking knowledge, where's the source of our knowledge? God's inspired Word. That's, that's obvious. But what's maybe not so obvious is our search for that knowledge. In our search for that knowledge, we must have certain attitudes. In our, in our desire to, to obtain it, there are attitudes that are necessary for us to have. And one of those attitudes is the attitude of desire. Turn over to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. talks about a heart that is longing for knowledge. <coughs> It says, for, for if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. We need to have a heart that desires it. You know, when we think of that idea of desire, there are so many things in our lives that, that we desire. And, and, and so many things that are, that are placed on a very high priority to us. And I can't help, but when I think of the desire that we should have for God's Word, it's, it's the similar to what, what Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 2, when he said we are to desire it like babes and, and milk. 
When you, when every one of us that, that, that's ever held a child, held a baby, and when they get hungry, there is not a thing we can do. We can't rock them. We can't bounce them around our knee. We can't make silly faces. We can't, can't try and talk cute to them. Nothing is going to calm this child down until they get what they are desiring, until they get sustenance, until they get the food that they need. We need to desire. We need to desire knowledge about God and about his will. But also in that passage, in that desire, that includes an attitude of knowing the value of knowledge. In Proverbs chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, it shows us that it is more valuable, and we need to understand that it's more valuable than anything else. Saying, take my my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and and all desirable things cannot compare with her. We need to understand the value that this knowledge has. It is more valuable than the stuff that we want. It is more valuable than the money we can, we can make. It is more valuable than any other type of knowledge that we can, we can possibly attain in this world. This, val- this knowledge is of, of the most precious value. And we need to have a love for it. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. It tells us, whoever loves, dis- uh, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Another pr- translation say, whoever loves instruction. That word that is used there, instruction, discipline, it's the Hebrew word musar. What it describes is a person who loves being taught and loves God and desires his knowledge and knows the value of it so much He says, I understand that if I do wrong, I want to be corrected. I want to know where where I've messed up, and I want to be disciplined so that I can be what, what God expects me to be, and I can know more about him. And that's the prayer that we see David praying over and over again in the Psalms, saying, God, discipline me when I fall away from your word, and when I take my eyes off of you, discipline me, goad me, prod me, because I want to be on that path following you. And I'll tell you, these three uh, attitudes, this desire, this value, this love, this describes people like Daniel and his friends. This describes people who are going to be teachable. Let me tell you, a person with these sort of attitudes, a person with these sorts of attitudes is going to make daily Bible reading a priority in their life. It's going to be something that is important to them. One of the, we, we recently have, have joined a gym, and it's, it's way, way overdue. We won't even talk about that. We've recently joined a gym, and one of my favorite things in, in, in this membership that we have is the fact that while I, I, they've told me, you've you got to start on, on this recumbent bike because your knee is, is not strong and you're not, you don't need to be running, so you've got to start on this bike where you sit down and you're pedaling out in front of you, and it's basically like the lazy chair of, of exercises. And they say, start there and, and warm yourself up. And that provides an excellent opportunity for me just to spend a little bit of time reading in God's Word. We have it everywhere. We have our own personal Bibles that, that people uh, in, in that day did not have. 
But not only that, we have it on our phones, our tablets. We can very quickly pull it up on a computer screen. It is everywhere. We have no excuse if we don't make a priority out of a daily Bible reading. We need to utilize every opportunity that we have to study God's Word, whether it be alone or whether it be with others. We, don't, we shouldn't take these opportunities for granted. This morning, we, we had an excellent Bible study about the parable of the Good Samaritan. I, I learned a lot from it, and I was encouraged by it. This afternoon, we are going to spend some time in God's Word, and we're going to spend time in, to go into God in prayer, and we're going to emphasize that, that idea of prayer this afternoon. Wednesday nights, all of these are are opportunities that we have made as a family here, as the congregation that meets at Lake Street to grow together. Do not take for granted these opportunities because what we do is we demonstrate an attitude that says, I think acquiring the knowledge of God's word is a priority. And if we are diligent in our study of God's word, then our progress will be evident. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 tells us we are to meditate. <clears throat> we talked about this um, uh, about a month back. That was kind of the, the primary goal or primary focus of some time that, that I, I was fortunate to spend with a bunch of the youth from central Kentucky. We talked about this word meditate and what that means. To, to meditate on something is to give it more than just a, 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 a fleeting thought. You know, we, we, we don't meditate on a, usually, on, on a sign that we see on the back of a semi-truck as we're driving down the interstate. Maybe we read it and we go on, and then we go on. But we are to meditate. We are to give time and effort into thinking about what? About God's Word, about this, about what we have recorded for us that describes to us God. And in doing that, it will produce It's not that it might produce. It will produce an example that others can follow. But I want to warn you that the opposite of this, the reverse of this, is true as well. Sadly, it is painfully obvious when others show by their example that they are careless in their study of God's Word. But having said that, I think that brings up a very important point that we need to consider. That there is a danger as well from knowledge. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Knowledge is essential to adding to our faith and to our virtue. This idea of investigation, this idea of a desire, a love, a a, a value of, of knowing more and growing closer to God. But one thing that is very evident is knowledge can make and can breed arrogance. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Knowledge can, can puff up rather than build up. That word that is used there, I put it on the word uh, on the board again. That is that is another Greek word. And I, I'm, I know these are a lot of Greek and Hebrew terms that we've talked about today, but it's important to understand the the meaning behind the words that were used. That word is, is fusia, fusiao, fusiao, and it literally means to inflate. 
We think about it with a balloon. You can go, Fusiao, that balloon or that raft. Let me show you a little bit about how it works. We can see it in the way it works in our very lives today. You take any one of us men, I know that I, for one, am very, very susceptible to this, and you give us the little bit of knowledge that we have done something well. And then stand back and watch. Because our, our heads will fusiao. We will inflate. We will swell up. You ever heard that phrase sometimes, he knows just enough to be dangerous? Sometimes we know just enough to be dangerous, especially to ourselves. I'm going to share an example with you of that. Back uh, several years ago, um, I can't remember if, uh, if Ryder was born yet or not, but a friend of mine came over. And he, he, he came to the house and was just real excited. He said, I, I saw this video on YouTube, and, and they were making smoke bombs, and it's really easy, and we can do it. And, and I was like, okay, let's do it. And it, it was only two ingredients. There was a potassium nitrate and sugar. And I was like, okay, we can't mess that up. You can't really mess up just two ingredients. You just put one in here, one in here, shake it together, heat it up. It's good. We can do that. And so we did it. We made one, and it worked. And, and we had knowledge. We had watched YouTube videos to get that knowledge, and then we had experience that gave us that knowledge, and we lit it, and it went, and it made a smoke cloud, and it was gone. We were like, that was cool. I want to do that again, but it's got to last longer. And now we can, we can start to be a little inflated in this. Certainly, we know what we're doing. We've made one. We have, a, we have every, we're, we're scientists. We're rocket scientists. We can do this. Let me tell you, I was... I was getting inflated, but we became deflated very quickly. We decided, I decided, I'll, I need to take, uh, I need to take uh, responsibility for that. I decided that if we had baking soda to it, it'll slow the reaction down. Well, baking soda, baking soda kind of inflates things while they're cooking as well. Instead of being this, this caramely syrup that was supposed to be, it turned into this great big powder. And the, the, we were smart enough to cook it outside. Uh, but the grill that we were cooking it on, the gas grill, the flames came in contact with that big bubbly surface. And, and this smoke bomb turned into an explosive, fiery goo that flew out. It literally blew up in our faces. Um, fortunately, it, it didn't hit any of this in our faces. It, it gave my friend third-degree burns on his hand. Um, but we became, we became deflated very quickly. Knowledge puffed us up, and knowledge, really the lack thereof, we, we thought we knew more than what we knew. It brought us back down. And that's why, that's why it's so important to temper our knowledge. If you're a cook, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you talk about tempering something. If you take an ingredient like cinnamon or really any other spice, but cinnamon is really, really seems like really popular today. A, a spice like that is extremely potent by itself. No one is really looking for an opportunity to take a big spoonful of cinnamon. Yes, I know there's videos online of, of, of people being, being stupid and putting mouthfuls of cinnamon in their mouth and choking and coughing and in, in some sad cases, even, even dying from that. But nobody really goes, oh, cinnamon is so good by itself. I want a great big spoonful of cinnamon to eat. That's a really rare person that likes to eat cinnamon by itself, but add sugar. You temper cinnamon with sugar, you have my attention. Thus the reason why we have the gym membership now. You have my attention when you temper cinnamon with sugar. Our knowledge needs to be tempered. It needs to be tempered with love and with meekness. We read that in chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge makes arrogance, but love 
edifies. In just a few chapters, <clears throat> just a few chapters, Paul's still talking about love. In chapter 13, and verse 4, he says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecoming, does not, act, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We need to take our knowledge that is absolutely necessary and temper it with love and with meekness. The same way James, <clears throat> the same way James talks about in James chapter 3, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, which says, Come now. Excuse me, I'm ahead of myself. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. In verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. We must temper our knowledge with these things. And what does tempering do? If you take a knife or if you take some sort of steel and you, you temper it, you are making it so it's not brittle. You are making it so that you can sharpen the edges. And when, when they used to make swords for, for fighting and for combat, they would temper that metal so that if they come in contact with another sword, it wouldn't just shatter and explode. It wouldn't chip really bad. It was to make it hard, to make it strong. Our knowledge is weak and brittle if we do not temper it with love and with, and with meekness. And not only is our knowledge weak, but it will crumble the foundation that it is re meant to reinforce. If our knowledge is not strong, it is reinforcing our faith and our virtue. Those things will crumble if we do not understand the importance and the danger behind knowledge. Because knowledge can destroy 1 Corinthians again, verse 8, as we continue on, verse 4 through 11, it says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, so indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some. Being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple... Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For though your knowledge is, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, and a brother for whose sake Christ died. <clears throat> when we despise the lack of knowledge in others, again, that, that's part of that tempering our knowledge so that we are going to be gentle and we are not going to rejoice in unrighteousness, but we're going to rejoice in the truth. So when we see others who don't have the, uh, the knowledge of ours and we despise them and we run, just completely run over their, uh, their conscience and, and treat it a, uh, in a careless manner, such abuse 
That's what that is, is abuse. It produces sin in our lives. And verses 12 through 13 says, And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is seek, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Knowledge of God is going to create in us, it should create in us, a love that is so important in tempering that knowledge that, it, that there is no way that we will cause our brethren to stumble. Because if we just run roughshod over their consciences, not only do we sin against them, we sin against our Lord. Against the very person we are seeking to grow closer to. And so just like that sharp knife, that sharp sword, knowledge can be very dangerous if it's used improperly. But with the proper application of knowledge, with the proper application of knowledge, we can build up our faith because faith comes from God's Word. We can provide direction in which we can channel our pursuit for excellence. We can set an example after which others can follow. And all of this is reinforced, is strengthened by knowledge. So the question is, are we growing in knowledge? If not, we are setting ourselves up for destruction. My people are destroyed for lack of of knowledge. If that describes us this morning, if we have not made it a made an effort and shown a desire and a value and a love, we are setting ourselves up to fail. But if we are, if we are growing in knowledge, then we are on that right track. As we read in 2 Peter, we will never stumble. We will not lose that hope that we have of heaven to our faith and to our virtue. We need to be sure to add knowledge that we might truly grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we have an invitation that is offered to us. It is an invitation that is, a, that is open and available every second of every day. But I want to tell you all the knowledge in the world, all the knowledge in the world will not save us unless it prompts us to follow Christ. And what does he ask us to do? To believe in him, to repent, to confess, to be baptized, to remain steadfast until the end. We are to follow Christ, and we can do that. We can do that because there are people here who love us. We are a family, and all we are asking for, us, for, for each of us to do is to be a part of that family, not to be a, a, a stranger on the outside, but to be an integral part of that family. So we can do that. We can certainly be joined with those people who already love us so much, but we can do that because God wants us here. He wants us to be part of that family, and a knowledge of Him will teach us that He desires to help us in that. If that is your desire as well, if that is your desire this morning, won't you please come forward right now and let it be known as we stand and sing.